Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Zonny here, um, just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the podcast, been jamming you while I'm painting uh, away, um, doing some art, and uh, just really interesting ideas man, I remember meeting you uh, in Chiang Mai, Thailand, right before COVID hit, and uh, we, we had no idea well, what the next year was going to be, but I'm um, just been jamming your podcast non-stop, and lots of love man. Ah uh, yes, that seems long ago and far away, but... I guess it wasn't so long ago in terms of clock time. Historical time's another issue. Uh, I'm in Big Sur right now. Thank you, Zani, from Thailand. I remember you, and your paintings are fucking awesome. I had no idea, I think, when I met you, even what you did, but uh, checked out your work online. Really beautiful. Uh, hey, I'm in Big Sur strange on the van trip camping at a place called lime kiln state park uh right on the beach beautiful redwood groves um strange weather it's like uh freezing cold in the shade and super hot in the sun can't really find the comfort zone but i shouldn't complain because from what i hear there's a massive heat wave hitting the southwest. Temperatures over 100 degrees in many places. So, uh, hope you're doing all right if you're out there in that mess. This episode is with my friend, very close friend, Richard Schweid. He's an awesome dude. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard a previous conversation with him. I think this might be his third appearance on the podcast. Richard's uh, Richard's a, a writer, but he's also an activist. I don't even know if he would consider himself an activist, interestingly. Um, but Richard's writing is very... Uh, uh, what's the word? It's, it, it's not overtly political, but uh, he's a... He's an interesting man who's concerned about the state of the planet the state of humanity he's very concerned about justice and kindness and he's to me he's in the tradition of um mark twain or kurt vonnegut uh he doesn't he, his writing isn't overtly humorous uh although he certainly conveys humor when he sees it or when it occurs to him um but it's it's much more than it seems on the surface uh richard has written books about everything from chili peppers to eels to cockroaches to uh how various cultures conceive of death um he's an octopus uh, whatever grabs his curiosity, and he's got a very g- 
grabby curiosity, uh, he goes off on it, and a book comes out of him. And his latest book is about people who care for other people professionally, and not not doctors or you know firefighters, but people who come to your house when you're old and cook for you and clean up and give you your meds and turn you over and try to keep you alive. And these are people who are working for minimum wage, mostly women, mostly immigrants. And um, it's a strange, exploitative world that we have just sort of accepted. And it's kind of heartbreaking because this is work you can only do if you are a giving person, if you are compassionate, um, deeply compassionate. And it's so important. And yet, in our very strange, very sad society, somehow these people are valued as nothing. They're valued at the bottom. They're paid as little as they can be paid. And in many cases, the people they work for, the companies they work for, are just exploiting the fuck out of them. Getting all this government money and um, paying their workers as little as possible. But hey, that's capitalism, right? That's what makes the world go round. That's what brings us all our amazing improvements that make life so wonderful. Uh, as I said, I'm camping at this uh, state park on Big in the beach in Big Sur. Really interesting, beautiful place. And it being in California is strange. California just officially opened up uh, yesterday, I think. Um, masks are not required if you have been vaccinated. Of course, there's no way to prove and no one's asking you to prove you've been vaccinated. But it's really interesting how my perspective on this has shifted because... As you may remember, my thing six months ago was, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Wear a goddamn mask when you're in public, right? Um, because it can slow transmission. And you might have the virus. You might be shedding virus and wearing a mask will protect people around you to some extent. Um, now that I've been vaccinated and I'm not wearing a mask... Uh, I start to notice all the people who are, and now I'm wondering what's motivating them. What's going on? I mean, I just walked down to the beach, and there was a woman wearing a mask sitting on the beach alone, on a beach, wind blowing in her face, coming in off the Pacific Ocean. Does she think the fucking virus is blowing over from China across the ocean right up her nose? Why the fuck is she wearing a mask on the beach alone? 
And why, why are people where I see people driving down the road in L.A. wearing a mask alone in their car? What's going on? What are they thinking? Is it just that people aren't capable of thinking beyond mask equals protection, therefore wear a mask at all times? Is there not any capacity for nuance beyond that? You know what I mean? It's just so fucking weird. I don't understand people. I really don't. Uh, it's all a mystery to me. But I understand Richard Schweid to some extent. And uh, and I love this guy. I admire him very much. Richard has been around the block a time or two, as they say. He has had lifetimes of experience. I think he told me, I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but like one of his first jobs was a, like an assistant to a snake oil salesman or something like going I don't know maybe I'm mixing it up with some Mark Twain story but I remember something about that like or in a circus or something like that I don't know Richard's an interesting guy he's been all over the place he's one of the few people I know that I would actually uh, consider to be wise in some extent uh, to some extent he's and he's wise in, in the sense that he would deny any claim to wisdom, of course. Um, but that's how you know when someone's wise, when they tell you they're not. Richard would definitely tell you he's not. All right, I am going to just jump right into it without any further ado. Oh, one, a little more ado. Uh, we had our meetup in L.A. It was awesome. It was so cool. This guy Ryan wrote to us, and I, ne- I didn't know him, and he just said, uh, "Hey, I, you know, I, I know this place. It's uh, the end of a dirt road. It's out, outside of L.A. It's really cool. The woman who owns it's great, and I, I do some. I think he has a studio there where he does music and painting. And um, anyway, we just went with it, and it was at the end of a dirt road. It was probably six miles back a dirt road." last spot uh beautiful property just beautiful um and lynn the woman who owns it made tacos and um everyone was just hanging out people showed up i don't know 30 40 people showed up just awesome people everybody was great and it was such a nice you know i I get bitter. I get confused and angry and when I see what we're doing to the planet and see what we do to each other and I I can get kind of down into that and it's so awesome when we have these things and I'm just talking to you know one amazing cool kind smart person after another and they just um and they're hanging out together and and Lynn the woman was like oh I thought all these people knew each other they're all just so friendly and relaxed and I said no none of them know each other I mean you know except who they came with and I don't know any of them makes me feel good about humanity is what I'm saying Um, so if you're ever in a place where we're doing one of these things I really encourage you to come out 
not so much to meet me, just to meet each other. Because um, in my experience, you're some pretty awesome people. And um, so we're doing another one in Santa Cruz uh, tomorrow, but I don't have any Wi-Fi, so you probably won't hear this until tomorrow or afterwards. But um, then we're going to try to do one somewhere in Idaho, don't know where. Uh, probably in we'll do one in Oregon, Grass Valley, California. Uh, I'm not sure where else, but we're gonna do them around. Maybe maybe up in Montana, maybe Whitefish, Montana. If anyone's up there, anyway, check my website, thatchrisryan.com. Under about, you'll see a Vanthropology uh, link. Click on that, and uh, that'll update where we're doing them, when we're doing them, how we're doing them, and uh, if you have any suggestions on locations that we could use. We're trying to keep them outside, uh, you know, COVID-friendly, of course, and um, a place where people can bring some beers or some wine or whatever and, and just hang out and have a good time. So, hope you can join us for one of those. I'm doing them together with Anya Katz and her audience, who are also awesome, and uh, we're doing the one in Santa Cruz with Kyle Tierman, so it'll be a triple threat. All right, thanks for listening to this. This is Richard Schweid, awesome dude, whom I admire very much, and uh, you'll see why when you listen to a bit of this. Take care. This is another commercial-free, bullshit-free episode of Tangentially Speaking, brought to you by supporters of the podcast thank you for your support however you manifest it peace out oh i should tell you the song i'm about to play it's a song that always reminds me of richard um it's called he was a friend of mine and uh it's willie nelson and it's not so much that richard is the friend of mine that i'm thinking of it's more like richard's had a lot of friends. Richard's known a lot of people. Uh, as I say, he's been around the block. He's seen some things. And when I hear this song, I, for some reason, I associate it with Richard. Um, I imagine there are some people in his life that he thinks of when he hears this song. So anyway, that's the resonance for me. This is Willie Nelson. Take care, y'all. friend of mine He was a friend of mine Every time I think of him I just can't keep from crying Cause he was a friend of mine Died on the road 
favorite writers, Richard Schweid. Welcome, brother. Thank you very much, brother. It's great to be here. Uh, it's n nice to see you. It's been a little while since we had a chance to talk. <laughs> it has. Yeah, man. Uh, I can't even remember the last time we hung out. Richard is in Barcelona, uh, and uh, we met each other there, God, years ago. I don't know. I can't even say 15 years ago, 20 years. I don't know. Did we meet playing poker or... 
That's right. We did meet playing poker, and it was a couple of decades back, I do believe. But I don't think I've seen you since uh, I was able to, you know, since I was unable to go out of the house without a mask, uh, for sure. Oh, so, no, I haven't been to Spain since the whole COVID thing started. So, yeah, it's... I haven't been to Spain, maybe. Oh, I went very briefly um, uh, when a friend died. Uh, I went over uh, just for three days um, to be with his wife, who's my ex-girlfriend, Peggy. Did you ever meet Peggy? Sure, I did. And I remember he had some sort of degenerative disease. Yeah, yeah, Nacho. Yeah. He died from uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, That's it. So yeah, that was, are we, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. We had dinner at, at your house uh, at one point on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So anyway, I just went back. I went over uh, very briefly just to, to spend a few days with her, and that I, I haven't been to Spain other than that probably in three years. I'm hoping to come this summer. If the virus allows us, we were talking before we started recording about the situation. It looks like things are are getting better. A lot of vaccine being distributed in Spain. So, you know, maybe by midsummer they'll let us back in. I bet they will. They'll let you back in and gladly because, uh, you know, the number one thing on their list of priorities is getting the tourists to come back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They want to open up. You know, there's not a lot of economic... Uh, activity going on here without tourists so yeah yeah you'll yeah. be able to come over so your richard's latest book uh, the caring class uh dude i i first of all i have to apologize i haven't read the whole book um i'm i'm recording like three podcasts a day at this point because i've only got wi-fi for another uh couple of weeks so i'm, I'm cranking them out um oh. but i did I did look at it, and man, you are such a good writer. You, uh, you know, th the book is about uh, home health care workers, and you know, I I opened it up thinking like, oh, it's going to be kind of a dutiful, mm, not a fun read, but I got sucked into it immediately. Uh, the way you you describe the the journey of like you had no intention to write about this, you were doing a little research and. You know, there's the double entendre that you were taking a class just to do research, a caring class. And, and now, it you know, and there's also a class of people who are doing this work. Um, and it turns into, like all of your books, it turns into this very personal journey um, that's just uh, so much fun to read. I sort of went through and I was, you know, I, I really like. I don't know about you as a writer, but for me, when I get the first sentence of something, that's like half of the work. Like in that first sentence, I kind of know where I'm going and what I'm trying to say. It's all in that first sentence. And I read like the first paragraph of each of the chapters and they're fucking hilarious. Some of them, some of them are really moving and touching and um, surprising and like, I mean, that one, there's a dialogue where, like, a guy finds a condom inside his, his wife. Into, I mean, you just, like, I'm not expecting to read stories like that in a book like this. It's fantastic, man. That's good, man. I wasn't really expecting 
you know, I was lucky because, in some sense, I was lucky. The, the women in the class that I took that were, you know, training to be home health care aides, they're not so lucky because it's incredibly tough work. They're getting minimum wage, this and that. But for me, to get to spend like a month, six weeks with, with uh, women of color who are studying to be home health care aides, it was great. I mean, I enjoyed it thoroughly. They were just warm and kind and funny. Uh, and I had a really good time, uh, as well as learning a lot. And, and you know, that wouldn't have been possible in, in real life, and as it were. I mean, I, there's not a group of people that I would have encountered to, or been able to spend a month getting to know. So that was really pleasant uh, for me. That was, a you know, plus the book takes unfolds in the South Bronx, which is somewhere that I had... Uh, Hardly ever been. We were in the South Bronx once filming Balseros in 2004, 2003. But uh, I'd never spent any time in the South Bronx. It was a really interesting place. Uh, very, very interesting place. You know, very interesting part of Manhattan. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I've been to the South Bronx a few times. I had a girlfriend from there. Uh, the Grand Concourse, I remember, yeah. uh, was where her mother lived. And uh, I, when I first moved to New York in like 1984 or 5, I, I was so naive about the city, man. I had no idea what anything was. And I was going there to, to be around her primarily. And so I remember I... Uh, I went and looked at some apartments in the South Bronx thinking I was going to move in. And I just remember walking down the street and people looking at me like, what are you doing here, man? Yeah, you know, right. like, and then I like go and look at the apartment and the, even the real estate people were like, what are you doing here? This yeah. is not a place for you, white boy. Yeah. No, yeah. This, this is kind of the opposite of what happens if you're black and you go to look at an apartment in most places, you know, you walk in, yeah. the realtor's eyes kind of widen and... <laughs> wonders what you're doing. (laughs) No, the South Bronx is really, you know, uh, the amazing thing about it that surprised me was that it's full of blocks with big old trees and nice two-story brick homes with little yards and bigger backyards. And it's, you know, it's very, there's a lot of it like that that looks as if it would be prime real estate for development. Uh, yeah. except that it's a long hours subway ride to white Manhattan. And, uh, you know, it's only the fact that there's so many minority neighborhoods there. That's the only reason that it's not tremendously developed and totally out of reach economically. And little bit by little bit, uh, they are gentrifying the South Bronx. You know, they're kind of working their way up. But they've got a ways to go yet. So Yeah. I remember yeah. uh, I got a job in construction in New York uh, as working with the, the this millionaire dude that I worked with, and we had a dinner, me and him and the the contractor that was going to be running the job, and it was in a restaurant in the Bronx, and I remember going up there and it was like you know tenement housing you just you know what to what you would think about when you think of the south bronx and then from one block to the next it was 
like residential suburbia, <laughs> like manicured lawns and all this. And they explained to me that that was the Italian neighborhood. Yeah. And there was this sort of, you may as well have been the Berlin Wall there. Like you don't cross right. the street. If you're not Italian, you don't cross that street. And um, yeah, it was like total mafia kind of mobbed up. Very strange. Yeah, no, there are some small Italian enclaves out there, um, mostly at the end of the various subway lines and everything. I mean, just I write about this in the book because the first place I lived was in an Italian neighborhood and there was like, you know, three places to get cannolis on a Sunday morning. There was like all kind of delicious coffee. There was just about anything my little heart desired that way, you know. Uh, but then you go 15 minutes from there and you're in the middle of a neighborhood, you know, that's entirely uh, Caribbean or West Indian. And, yeah, you know, there are no, I hadn't been an Italian in that neighborhood in decades. I mean, <laughs> it's curious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And, and everything that goes on there is kind of, you know, it, it has the neighborhood's kind of characteristics are, are at the core of everything that's happening in any given neighborhood. So it's, it's curious for sure. Have you ever yeah. lived in, in New York? I have, yeah. Uh, I lived first, well, you know, I was born and raised in Nashville. And all yeah. I wanted to do as a teenager was go to New York. Uh, and I went up with my parents. I had an aunt and uncle that lived on Long Island. And we went up, I can remember it really clearly, I was about 13. We went up to visit them. And one night we went into the city to eat at Minetta's in the village, in Greenwich Village. And it was a summer night. And as we drove toward that restaurant through Greenwich Village, I saw all these people sitting out on their stoops. You know, some of them having a drink, some of them having a smoke, just sitting out and relaxing and talking. And I thought, whoa, this is definitely uh, looks good to me. I'd like to leave Nashville immediately and come here. And when, as soon as I was able to leave Nashville, uh, I did go there. And uh, so I've I, I lived in a variety of neighborhoods in New York, but never in the Bronx, huh? Hmm. Yeah. Manhattan? In Manhattan, yeah. And uh, that year when I went up, I, I worked summers in New York. Uh, I worked at the, in the stock room of Doubleday Bookstore for a couple of summers and uh, lived on the Lower East Side on East 4th Street. And yeah. uh, and then we moved over to the West Side, to the West Village, uh, and, and lived way over on 11th Street, right over by the river. Uh, and then I also lived up on 72nd and Broadway at one point. Uh, mm. Yeah. So what years, yeah. what years were you down in the village? I was down in the village 1964, 65. Wow. So was the village, was the scene like that whole Bob Dylan, you know, the sort of folk music in cafes, was that happening at that point? It was happening at that point. And then actually we moved from there over to Christopher Street. Uh, hmm. A couple of friends of mine and I moved over to Christopher Street and... Uh, and that was, then the folk thing was definitely happening. And that's, uh, we ran into Amy Lou Harris and spent a lot of time with her in that time. And she was very much involved in that 
whole thing. Uh, she and I both went from New York to Nashville. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was all going on there. But, you know, I mean, we were poor as shithouse rats. You know, we didn't yeah. have any money. Uh, so we didn't go to a lot of clubs. Uh, one thing we used to do was take the subway uptown and go to salsa clubs uh, and just buy the cheapest thing we could buy, a beer, and just sit at the table and watch people dance. I mean, uh, those were the great years of salsa also. Uh, mm. You know, Ray Barreto and Willie Colon and, oh, it's fantastic. That was great. Yeah. And where were they? Were they uh, in the... Spanish Harlem, like Spanish below Harlem, Harlem right. you know, up around probably west side, 100, 110th, up, the, up yeah. that way, you know. I had a friend who was yeah. really into that music, uh, fortunately, and uh, he, he would take me up there. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, my first apartment in New York was 106 in Lexington. Yeah, yeah. That's where I ended up. Uh, in, you know, luckily I didn't get a place in the South Bronx, but not too far. <laughs> yeah, you were. In 1985, yeah. Ooh, South Bronx was, uh, was no-go territory in those years. There, there was no joke what was going on in those years in the South Bronx. That's when it earned yeah. its terrible reputation. You know, but yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing. I, I, in the course of the book, just visiting, I visited some people in the South Bronx who were receiving home health care. And they're just like a, a, a real wide gamut of living situations. I mean, some of those housing projects, high-rise housing projects, are still in the South Bronx. It house an awful lot of people. It's hard living. It's really yeah. hard living, you know. It's tough. Uh, it's really tough. And then there's other places that are, you know, really nice. I mean, like you said, you get up to Riverside or something like that, and uh, it's, it's a lot of money living up there, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is is um, just your career as a writer. You're, you have such an interesting career in the sense that, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my, my impression is that you use writing to go where you want to go. You don't really write for money. You're not taking assignments. That's for you sure. Know, like... <laughs> no, but seriously. Damn right about that, son. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really admire it because I think so many people, you know, who want to write, it's such a difficult career path that so many people are like, okay, I'm going to write, I, I'll do anything, I'll do whatever they, they'll they pay me to do, I'll do it. But I look at your career and it's like, man, you ping pong all over the place, fucking eels and <laughs> chili peppers and, you know, the how do people conceive of dying around the world? I mean, your books are are really... I feel like a map to your interests and where you wanted what you want to learn and what you want to investigate. And it's almost as if the book is an afterthought in a way. Is well, that this accurate? is true. This, this is very definitely true. And, you know, uh, it, it speaks to your acute perception. <laughs> That's so evident in those books. Uh, no, you know, for me, I mean, I really love to write, but uh, I'm not a literary writer and you know uh, I have basically 
I've always it, actually the first book that really inspired me to to be able to write uh, was a book uh, by John McPhee, Oranges. Uh, mm. You know, because when I read Oranges, I realized that anything is interesting, and that everything is connected. And right. you know, if you get curious about one little thing, if you pull on the string of that one little thing a little bit, uh, you know, it opens up and opens up to connect itself to lots of different things. And so basically, I, just like I was saying about the class in the Bronx, that I would not have been able to spend a month or six weeks with a bunch of uh, young minority women uh, living in the South Bronx. Uh, and this was a good way to spend every day, all day, uh, in their company. And uh, it seemed to me like a, just a curious thing. And, and I was also curious about the Bronx, curious. I mean, so, you know, and that basically that's been the motive for all of my books is, well, that's a, that's a really, uh, that's an odd thing. Uh, you know, the eel book was a, a book about eels started uh, down there in the, the Abu Fera when I was having breakfast with a couple of people. We were working on a story down there and the guy served us these eels for breakfast and he told us this story about where they came from, that they were all born in the Sargasso Sea and they drifted for years before they got to a river in Spain and, and into the Abu Fera. And I thought, uh, I don't know, who told this guy this bill of goods, but they did a good job with it. Who, who could possibly believe that this was the case? Uh, and yet, of course, it turned out to be the case. Uh, those kinds of things, you know. It, it, being a writer has given me sort of a, you know, a way to go places and meet people that I was interested in and would not have ever had a chance to either go and meet uh, if I wasn't writing a book, you know. Uh, yeah. So I, every so often, you know, you run into somebody that says, uh, no, you can't interview me, man. I don't want to be interviewed. I want to be in a book. But most people, uh, you know, are glad to talk about their lives to, to you. Um, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Studs Terkel, uh, yeah. uh, who was, a, you know, a, a precursor to the podcast, if ever there was one. Uh, mm. and whose books, they're wonderful, you know, they just, uh, all they do is give you word for word what the people said in, in his interviews, but it's great stuff, you know, Henry Mayhew back in 19th century England, same thing, you know, we, they give you a, a sense of some place you, you don't know how it was, you don't know how the average person felt, uh, and it's great reading, so, I mean, that kind of, those are my heroes, you know, along with McPhee. So yeah, yeah. I I've always thought of you in together with Studs Terkel. Yeah. Um, not not only because of the kind of you know very highly like observational, and you you turn the mic over to people very readily. You know, you just you let them talk, and you record what they're saying. I mean, your work is so interesting because. All the books of yours that I've read, you're present in the book. You're you're very present, but your your ego is not present. If that makes sense to me, it's never a book about Richard. 
but it's always your journey. And, you know, it's very easy to sort of get behind your eyes and see things as you're going through because you're allowing yourself to be surprised as the book unfolds before you. It feels like you're very you're allowing it to happen very organically. Well, good. Thanks. I'm glad that 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 happens. I mean, for me, it's always been the only purpose. As you know all too well, it's hard as hell to write a book. And it is not an easy process. Even, I'm sure, for Studs, who only had to sort of write down what he recorded, he had to listen to all those tapes. But uh, it's hard to write a book. So, you know, for me, the only way to make it at all interesting is to sort of... uh, put myself uh, and the reader in the same set of eyes so that uh, as I learn about something that I want to learn about, uh, if I can sort of explain that process well, then the reader can also learn about them at the same time as they can enjoy uh, reading about it, you know. Uh, Yeah. So I'm glad that works for you. You can be sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also uh, another thing you have in common with Studs Terkel, I think, is um, a sort of um, instinctive sympathy for regular people. Like I don't see a lot of movie stars and fashion models in your work. No, it's a you know you're you're down on the ground. You seem to be much more interesting interested in you know the common person's experience of things. Definitely, yeah, and uh, and also I mean many times now now that I'm an old geezer, I've found that many times uh, people who I thought were sort of just doing an everyday kind of job, 20 or 30 years after you talk to them, uh, you find, geez, he really had a lot to say, this person. I find myself, for instance, you know, you, you and I both, I'm sure, used to use cassette tapes. Uh, I've given, I wound up giving a lot of those tapes to various state libraries or archives here or archives there because mm. they're interesting. And the people that I'm interviewing are interesting. And, it, you know, uh, as average as people may be, there ain't no two, it's like snowflakes, there ain't no two of them alike. So, yeah. you know, uh, you, you never can tell. Um, so, yeah, but, but yeah. of course I like to talk to, uh, you know, just average everyday people because there is no such thing as an average. It doesn't seem exactly. like there is. You know, and once, I mean, Everybody is looking out from behind their eyes. And there's yeah. nobody looking out from behind their eyes who thinks of themselves as an average everyday person because they're not, you know, they are the universe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's no different for any of us, you know, but it's interesting to talk to people in different circumstances who are doing different things and, and see how that plays out for them. Yeah. No? In some way, you know, when I when I ask that question, I you know how sometimes you'll say something and it sort of echoes in your head for a while. As I asked that question, I said you lo- you like talking with common people. I, that word "common" was clanking around in my mind. I was like, no, that's the wrong word because the whole point is that they're not common. They're not the same. They're not you, you know everyone's different, and that's the whole point of what you're doing is exposing sort of bringing out the uniqueness of these people, even if it's a fucking taxi driver, it's a woman who's, 
you know, taking care of an old person for minimum wage. She's a fascinating person with a fascinating story. That's the whole point. Well, that's right. And, 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 yeah. and I mean, uh, you know, uh, I mean, everybody's like that. It just, to me, it's sort of the, how would you describe it? Uh, it's the oddest thing about being alive is that we are all in our own particular lives, uh, looking out of our own particular set of eyes at everybody else. Uh, it just always strikes me as, you know, a different, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a knot, it's a mystery, you know. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's how I enjoy doing it, anyhow. Yeah, so. yeah. It's been you, interesting. How many books writing for sure? How many books have you written at this point? I don't know, probably a dozen, all told. <laughs> I love when I love when the answer to that question is I don't know. Probably it's like it's funny. I think you, don't it's, know you know, it's, but there's some books that you can't hardly count. You know what I mean? It's not, and also I mean I have to say that what you said was very sweet. Uh, but I, there are many times when I've been perfectly willing to write uh, anything. If, if somebody sends me an email and says, uh, look, I think you'd be good to write about the stick. I just say, take a picture of the stick and send it to me. You know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> whatever, is, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever comes up is OK. Uh, yeah. I've been, in, I mean, for a long time, I've done a lot of different kinds of work that people have requested. But uh it's certainly true, you know, there's it, not a lot of money in it for me, and, but I'm okay. You know, I'm comfortable. So, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, all right, last bit of smoke I'm going to blow up your ass here is that when I read your work, I always think about something my father told me a long time ago when we were talking about writing. And he said, when you write, it should sound like you're sitting at the bar talking with your friends. <laughs> You're telling a story to your buddies, and that's invites the reader in, and you know, and there's a friendliness and a familiarity, and I always get that tone when I read your stuff. Oh, that's great. I, I mean, it's complicated because you are my buddy, so and I hear your voice, you know, <laughs> when I read your stuff. But I think people who don't even know you would get that same feeling from reading your work. Well, I hope are so. There, are there any of your books that, that really stand out? I mean, I know in a way it's, you know, books are like children. Maybe you don't want to, you know, to compare them that way. But are there any of the books that you've written that were particularly fun or particularly um, enlightening or surprising? Yeah, I mean, I think they don't all have been that way in, in a certain way. All the ones that I really like, uh, which are probably... Uh, I don't know, say eight of a dozen. Uh, and they all have brought me, I mean, each of them has brought me very distinct things, you know, uh, all of which I carry around with me now. Uh, you know, uh, now, all the books, I mean, to me, to, I wrote a book about the Mississippi Delta and I wrote a book about Cuba. And both of those books exist on the same plane for me, you know. The, the Mississippi Delta was as strange a place to me as, as Santiago de Cuba, uh, and that mm. was pretty strange. And, and 
all it's the people that I have met. Uh, I wrote a book years ago about catfish farming in the Mississippi Delta. It was a really interesting subject to me. Uh, none of these, I don't, you know, all these circumstances change. They don't farm catfish like they used to in the Delta, and they don't necessarily live like they used to either. And in Cuba, uh, things have changed a whole lot since I was there too. Uh, and hopefully, you know, home health care, man, I couldn't, I was just astounded, you know, to learn what's being asked of these women to do uh, for minimum wage. Uh, and one thing I found was remarkably, I talked to just lots of women who really love their work. And to me, to find a minimum wage job where people would say to you, listen, I've been doing this for 20 years and God willing, I'll do it till I fall over dead. Uh, and, and I heard it time and again from these women. Uh, tell me some other minimum wage job, you know, where people feel that way about it. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable class of people that do that work, that do it well. You know, it's like any other kind of job. There are people that do that work and they steal from some helpless old person or uh, they do it poorly or they don't. But a lot, a lot, a lot of home health care aides really love their work and they do a hell of a good job. And it's a tough, tough you know, I mean, as many people in, in the United States or in anywhere who've had to take care of uh, somebody with Alzheimer's, somebody in a wheelchair or bed bound, it ain't that fucking easy, mate. It's a really difficult thing just to do it okay, you know, much less to do it really well. But if you don't do it okay, somebody can die, you know. It's not like if you leave the kitchen dirty because you've been hired a minimum wage to mop the floor. Well, okay, you left the kitchen dirty. But if you don't do your job when you're taking care of an elderly person, uh, they can die, you know. Uh, it ain't no joke. And, and, and these people are being asked to do this work. These women, because it's almost always women, are being asked to do this work for peanuts while people make obscene profits off of their work. You know, uh, it, as I say in a book, it's the third fastest growing business in the United States because uh, Medicare, Care and Medicaid have huge home health care expenses. The private agencies, it's people have to have it. That's the thing. It's, it's you know, I, here's, I just want to emphasize, I'm very, very fond of a phrase that a political scientist professor at the University of Minnesota says a lot, Joan Tronto. And she says the purpose of economic life is to support health care, not vice versa, not the other way around. The purpose of, you know, healthcare is not to support economic life. It's not to be a good business. It's not to be a business in which some yo-yo who's got $75,000 and he wants to invest somewhere, uh, he, he starts a home healthcare agency to take care of old people. You know, this is not how it should be. Um, so, I mean, Whatever, uh, these are uh, realities and they, you know, impact on millions and millions and millions of Americans every year. You know, yeah. both those 40 million people who are taken care for free of a, ha a family member uh, 
or the two and a half million women that are working for minimum wage doing the same thing, you know. Uh, these agencies, and historically, this, I'm sorry to go on about this, but these are things no, that please. I think are important for people to know. Uh, yeah. In 1965, when Lyndon Johnson created the Medicare, up until 1980, uh, home health care was considered to be something that nonprofits should do. It was not considered to be something really where there's a lot of money to be made. And then, coincidentally, not coincidentally, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected uh, and immediately gave the green light to for-profit home health care agencies. Uh, and ever since then, things have been multiplying exponentially. Uh, you know, and it's, it's just part and parcel of, of exactly that, that uh, economic life should support health care in all of its formats. Uh, and health care is not in this world to support economic life, you know, to make lots of money for a handful of uh, equity investors. I mean, uh, it's tremendous. And part of this also is sort of a, a, a process from the 50s when hospitals were where you kind of, you know, you sent your father, your grandfather sick. They, spent, they could spend weeks in a hospital just being taken care of. And hospitals were a big investment in those days, a, a very lucrative investment. Lots of investors spent a lot of money building hospitals, but it got too expensive. So they turned to nursing homes. Nursing homes were also cash cows. And if you look in 2007, 2006, 2005, you'll find equity investors uh, saying there is no better investment in this world than a nursing home because people are going to get old and they're going to need it. But then, you know, uh, now home health care you don't need bricks and mortar like you need for a nursing home. Uh, you know, all you need is like, uh, you can do it from home, an office, a bunch of women that you hire for minimum wage, you give them a week's training, and you send them out. Uh, and your overhead is much lower than with a hospital or a nursing home. So this has just been kind of a progression, you know, of how to turn the necessity for all of us to get care for people into money. Uh, this how. You know, so I got more and more interested <laughs> as I took this class and understood what these women were expected to do for their minimum wage. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's especially heartbreaking because uh, you know, as you say, so many of the people who do this work are motivated by some deep spirit of generosity and caring and kindness and they're being taken advantage of yeah, that's right and they, i mean they like they like the work because they know that they're making a real difference in somebody's life they don't like the pay they don't like the fact that yeah. the benefits are skinny or not existent another interesting really interesting thing to me chris that uh, i found as you know uh five years ago i published a book about uh homeless families, about women trying to raise children homeless. Uh, and the more I learned about this, the more I realized that many, many, many of these women who are working as home health care aides have been homeless at some time in their life with their families. 
uh, and I began to see that caregiving in, in being a home health aide is a one way to begin to pull yourself out of extreme poverty. Uh, and there ain't that many ways to pull yourself out of extreme poverty if you are a woman with a couple of kids living in a motel room. Uh, but being a home healthy, it, for instance, where I, where I was taking class is a home health care agency, cooperative. Uh, they have 2,000 aides. Uh, they employ 2,000 aides. And uh, at least half of those aides have been homeless with their families at some point in their lives. Uh, so in addition to sort of taking advantage of the fact that everybody needs it, uh, people can really like their work, uh, it also provides, you know, all, uh, homeless mothers, not all of them will make good home health care aides, but some of them will. And we should be in some way taking advantage of what's kind of a vertical structure. You know, lots of, lots of municipalities that have homeless people living in, in, their, in the boundaries of their town or city, and they don't know what to do about it. They don't like it. It ain't right. But what can they do about it, you know? Uh, particularly if rents are high, you can't find a place to put these people. Uh, one thing you can do about it is to, is, is to sort of try and create a process by which people living and women living in extreme poverty and trying to raise your kids can work as home health aides if they're good at it. And you're going to save a lot of people. You're going to take a lot of people out of extreme poverty. Um, you know, so uh, Joe Biden, as you may know, in the uh, job plan for America, the one, the, how much is it? $1.4 trillion? Uh, mm. They've got $400 million set aside to dedicate to domestic workers, including home health care workers, to uh, raise the minimum wage or raise their wages to facilitate their organizing unions uh, with the service employees union uh, and to provide them with some benefits. Now, what's going to happen, of course, is that the people that are making these tremendous amounts of money off of home health care, uh, they ain't going to stand for this shit. You know, they're going to uh, mount, they, they already have a huge lobby and the lobby is going to be, you know, really pushing down hard saying, you know, uh, you can't destroy this, uh, you know, employment will go down. We won't be able to take care of people if we have to raise, if we have to pay them more than minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that battle is about to play out, um, you know, and people are going to have to stay stay strong. We'll see if Biden is, uh, and his administration are capable of, uh, of, of dealing with that or if it's an underestimation of the kind that Hillary Clinton made when her husband tried to get a universal health insurance passed. Uh, I think it's easy to underestimate the lobbying strength sometimes. And I think a lot of it will come to bear uh, if they try to mandate uh, decent wages and benefits for home health aides. So we'll see. Yeah. That's coming yeah. up. Yeah. You're, you've always been extremely interested in in political situation in the United States. Um, but you've been watching it from Spain for, for what, 30 years or something? How long have you been in Spain? Long time, 25, 30 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, 
Uh, we we were talking before I turned on the the recording about uh, vaccine skepticism and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I was in in Spain altogether close to twenty years. It's weird to be here now. I I gotta say, I like watching it from a distance a lot more than I like being in the midst of it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I was raised in Nashville, uh, and I was raised in Nashville when the sit-ins were going on and the civil mm. rights movement. And Nashville was the spearhead of the civil rights movement. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I saw things, I saw nonviolence in a very profound way uh, that never left me. They really shaped me, you know, and uh, I was fortunate. My parents were both progressives and, you know, they had a bookstore and so I raised around books and ideas. Uh, but uh, you grew up, you know, they had a store downtown. I'd go out the door of the father, my father's bookstore and there'd be a, a serious uh, sit-in going on and people would be getting hurt and being nonviolent. And I was very impressed. So that's probably stayed with me, you know. Uh, Spanish politics, as you know, uh, I live in Barcelona and, of course, uh, Catalan independence here, and et cetera. There's a whole different set of political uh, questions here. But, you know, it all boils down to the same shit. I mean, it does all, you know, we've got right wing that's coming up here now, Fox, uh, far right, you know, fascist right wing that's coming up, Franco. It's really a, the remnants of Francoism. Uh, really? And they're growing every, every election in Spain, they're growing, just like, you know, Populism is, uh, we've certainly seen what it can do in the United States. Uh, but these are cycles. You have to believe that these are cycles. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. At any rate, people are going to keep on getting old, and they're going to keep on needing <laughs> somebody to help them because, you know, uh, 10,000 people turn 65 in the United States every day, and half of them mm. will need help getting through those days just with the basics of cooking and cleaning and uh, this and that and taking medicine. And I don't know. I found that a really, uh, the more I looked into it and got involved with it and learned about home health care, the more uh, I found it really, really an interesting, meaningful, important subject, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Definitely. You, you started, I mean, in the introduction, you talk about how you were, researching a book about cooperatives and that's how you sort of uh got you know you were riding that horse and suddenly you're on a different horse going in a different direction do you do you intend to go back and and work on that book about cooperatives or is that in the distant past now uh that's probably uh in the distant past although it's a really interesting subject uh you know i've got i have to say i've gotten to the point where if I don't have some minimal, a minimum wage encouragement from a publisher, uh, I'm not inclined to spend three, well, I'm old man, I'm going to spend three damn years writing a book about cooperatives if I can't find anybody that wants to publish it. And I've never actually found anybody who wanted to publish that book. But uh, it's really interesting, you know, the ejidos in Mexico. And as you know, Mondragon in, in the Basque yeah. country in Spain. Now, these are huge enterprises. Uh, based on the idea that, uh, you know, uh, everybody gets a little bit. 
and that the worker owns the company. And in the South Bronx, that company, uh, where I took classes, they're the largest cooperative in the United States. And they have only 2,000 employees, and only half of those, more or less, mm-hmm. are cooperative members. So you could say that the largest cooperative in the United States has uh, maybe uh, 1,500 in a good year, you know, whereas in Mondragon, in the Basque country, it's 80,000, and half of the uh, arable land being farmed in Mexico is in the hands of cooperative ejidos. So it, it, it is an interesting subject. It? It's sort of, in the U.S., is a long way from catching on. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, in a country where even unions are so denigrated, yeah. uh, co- the cooperative spirit, there's uh, not a lot of it. Yeah, it, it, it's perplexing, though, because, you know, when you think about uh, a sustainable, healthy, eth- ethically, uh, you know, integrated future, it seems to me cooperatives are one of the obvious options right where workers own the business like how can that not be i mean that makes perfect sense right it's like you know it's non-exploitative by nature because the actual workers own it um i don't understand why it's not more prevalent what what do you you have any ideas on that i mean uh, i guess i would look to uh the diminishing presence of unions in this country. Why would a worker want to leave the decisions about how he's got to work, how much he's got to work, how much he get paid? Why would he want to leave those decisions to the people that are only that own the business, whose natural right. interest is to pay him as little as possible, make him work as long as possible, etc.? cetera? Uh, I don't understand that. I really don't understand it. Uh, and being a conspiracist, I have to think that it's the end result of decades of consciously undermining and reformulating American thought. Just like we were talking before we started uh, about vaccination. Uh, how can there be one out of every four or five Americans who doesn't want to get vaccinated against a disease in which you either suffer and, or suffer and die because you can't breathe. I mean, what could be more awful? How could you, you know, how can you have so many people that, who don't want to wear a mask? By God, they don't see it as, you know, they see it as an abridgment of their freedoms. Uh, who They've probably never watched somebody in bed that can't breathe die. But uh, how, in the same sense to me, how can so many people not want to have a union where they work. How can the Amazon workers in Alabama? You know, yeah. it, we know about from Nomadland, thanks to Jessica Bruder, uh, we know how they treat their employees at Amazon. You know, that they spend 10 hours on a concrete floor and they're 68 years old uh, with a knee implant. I mean, uh, how, how, why did they not want a union? I said, well, uh, you know, I'm sure that Amazon has its strategy and... Uh, you know, was was pretty tajante, pretty pretty strong about letting the workers know that it wouldn't be good for them. But nevertheless, and cooperatives the same. You know, it's it's against the it goes against the American grain. I mean, a cooperative is is I don't think that has been ever 
sort of uh, part of the fabric of American society. That sort of thought. You know, maybe it's to come. Maybe one way or another, it will, it will appear and grow. I mean, that's what we would hope, you know. Yeah. Uh, what is it that King said? The arc of justice is long. <laughs> I mean, very long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I've always, I've always had trouble with that quote. You know, that, that yeah. bends toward justice. I, I'm not so That's sure it. it does. I, I feel like it's bending in the other direction. But who knows? Maybe it's cyclical, as you say. Do you? You know, with your perspective, I mean, not only you've been around the block a few times, but but also you've lived a life that's very thoughtful and, you know, you've researched all these different things and sort of followed your curiosity. You, you have, you know, of everyone I know, you have one of the most well-informed perspectives that I can think of. Do you, do you have any thoughts on what's going on in the world right now? Do you think, is, is this pandemic a a pivot point in in history? Do you think it'll leave any sort of structural, meaningful structural change, or do you think we'll ju it's just a bump on the road and we'll just roll over it and keep going? Uh, I never had less idea of, of what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think if people are able to, it'll just be a bump on the road. But to what extent? Uh, Virus and viruses uh, are connected to environmental damage. Uh, mm. Who knows? Uh, who knows? I mean, uh, it, it, one could imagine, wouldn't be too hard to imagine that we're at the last, uh, the last exit down the road has already gone by. You know, and that we are irredeemably on a course uh, which will, uh, you know, start life over again on the planet. Um, that's possible, not impossible. I, uh, on the other hand, it may be that uh, this turns out to be like the Spanish flu or the plague. Uh, I don't think, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, 1920, after two years of Spanish flu, which was much worse because it took the young people instead of the old people. I mean, it took mm. the babies. Uh, but I don't think after a few years, I'm not sure that things looked a whole lot different than they did before the damn flu and the war. Um, so, yeah. you know, I mean, you read uh, how it was in London in the 1600s or in Barcelona in the mid-1300s when there was plague, uh, and it was awful. I mean, everything fell apart. Society was no, no, everything you counted on was gone. But, you know, after a while, a uh, few generations, not many really, things were sort of hurtling down the road again. Uh, uh, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's amazing to me uh, how sort of disposable people are. You know how, like in the United States, they're they're saying now um, that it's the, this five to six hundred thousand is an undercount. It's probably closer to a million people have died from COVID, and it's like nothing changes. It's just kind of like yeah, okay, whatever. You know, um, yeah, bizarre as you say. I mean, World War One. You know, how many millions of people were killed in World War One and 
you know, 10 years later, everything's just kind of like back to normal. I'm like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of people make a lot of money because, of course, it was, a, you know, between 1920 and 1929. All right. A lot of people were making a whole lot of money and everybody was pretty happy. You know, a lot of sort of middle class people, too, were making a lot of money. It, same thing may yeah. happen here. Uh, yeah. Or, no, it's happening already. The stock market's yeah. going crazy, right? Yeah, exactly. Bitcoin. Everyone's making money on their fucking cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know if it's Chief Seattle or, you know, one of those speeches that one of the American Indians gave when they were signing the final, you know, surrender. And he said something about how someday you'll realize you can't eat money. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and I... I it's so ironic to think, you know, here's this, you know, Bitcoin. I don't know how much you know about cryptocurrencies and I don't know how much anyone knows about them. But, you know, Bitcoin is like it's using as much energy as like Finland and Sweden and the Netherlands combined or something like that. It's just this massive amount of energy being used for nothing, for fucking nothing. And, you know, the idea that we would end as a species, you know, generating huge amounts of energy to create this imaginary <laughs> like, digital currency is just like that's kind of the perfect, perfectly fitting end to this whole uh, civilizational enterprise as far as I'm concerned. It's just like, you know. Going yeah. through the mirror, you know, yeah. through yeah. Uh, Alice's mirror. Yeah. Through the looking glass. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It sounds right. You know, I try to resist. I think probably lots of people when they get to be my age think that the end is near, you know. Mm. Not, the end is certainly near for us. But I think people like to think that the end is going to be near for everybody else too. But God, if I can't make it, ain't nobody going to make it. Uh, so I try <laughs> exactly. to resist apocalypso calypso. Yeah. But yeah, eh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. How old are you, you now? Know. 74. Oh, 74. 74 going on 75. Huh? Damn. Yeah, man. That's some years, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. That's I'm turning years. 60 soon. Shh, ain't nothing, son. <laughs> keep telling me that no no you always want to have friends who are older than you so somebody will tell you you're young <laughs> that's right how is van life uh i'm about to set off in the van at the end of this month so i got uh, another 20 days so yeah i'm in the process now of uh you know painfully realizing how much crap i've accumulated in the last six months uh since i left the van Huh. And rented a house. So, yeah, uh, whittling down, getting ready. Um, and really, yeah, looking forward to it. It's it's a nice cycle, you know. Uh, we spent the winter in a rented house here in Colorado. And that was nice to, you know, have a kitchen and sort yeah. of. And also winter in Colorado is beautiful. So that, that was beautiful. I haven't been in, in snow for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So that was cool. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the van. You know, it's very different. You know, it's not it's not a nomad land situation, obviously, because I'm choosing it. It's you yeah. know, it's you know, the difference between camping and being homeless is pretty significant. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's great. I love it. It's it uh, it enables me to kind of hold on to uh, a bit of a hunter gatherer perspective on things. You know, sit by a fire at night and look up at the stars and great. You know, jump in the river. Uh, you know, it's great. You know, it sounds good to me living in Barcelona. <laughs> it sounds excellent. Yeah. <laughs> How are things there? Is it, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the Catalan separatist thing and, I, you know, it's the way news works. The only time I read about Barcelona is when there are riots in the streets. So, yeah. you know, it sounds like shit's melting down all the time over there. But. Yeah, there have been a few of those for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, you you find it very familiar, you know. It's uh, it's pretty much the same struggle. Uh, the, you know, here uh, we were talking about this six month state of emergency just ended this weekend. Uh, so during all that time, uh, restaurants were closed at night. If you wanted to have supper from a restaurant, you had to get it to go. Uh, for a great deal of that time, they were closed at three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, there were only a few hours when a restaurant was open. Uh, and there's a curfew. There was a curfew of 10 o'clock. And now, you know, mm. in Spain, people are just going out to supper at 10 o'clock. Uh, but no, the streets were empty. There was a curfew. You could hear the birds sing outside of the street. I live on a busy street. Uh, I had no idea how many birds lived here. Uh, <laughs> but you could hear them out there. That crazy. Uh, and, you know, everything was shut down. You couldn't go out after 10. If you went out after 10, you were likely to be stopped by a cop and asked, uh, you know, what were you doing? And if you didn't have a good answer, uh, you're going to get a fine. Uh, so it's been pretty tightly controlled here. Everybody has to wear masks. Um, if they're outside or if they're in, you know, you don't have to wear it in your house, but if you're inside uh, at work or something, you have to have a mask on. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot, you know, a lot, of, a lot of control, and now they've lifted the controls all at once, although uh, the statistics are still pretty bad as far as contagion goes. But they lifted the, the restrictions all at once, and people are going, you know, bullshit crazy. Uh, they think it means that the pandemic is over. Uh and of course, if they behave that way for very long, the next wave of the pandemic uh, will be here. But at least they're doing well vaccinating a lot of people, not as many as the states, but they'll get there shortly. Um, it's okay, but it certainly is not the Barcelona that uh, we knew or that we know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's been a tough year. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sense of community is even more important in Spanish culture than than it is over here absolutely you know, and family Although, you know people have not been yeah, able family, to see their family yeah. uh yeah. and uh, the, the reality is that people had to die alone uh thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people had to die alone uh you know so even if you weren't sick if if your mother your father was sick and, and in the hospital dying you couldn't go hold their hand you know yeah. uh and, and that's very difficult. I mean, that's very difficult. So, uh, it's, you know, and, and as you know, Spaniards in general are, are really, you know, family-oriented. We hug. You know how you, you meet somebody for the first time in Spain, uh, you kiss them on both cheeks. Uh, you know, you yeah. know, you, you never met them before. You don't shake their hand. You kiss them. You hug them. 
Yeah. Uh, that's how they are. Yeah. That, and will that come back? We don't know. We'll yeah. see. I mean, after a year, 14 months of really being confined and locked down and not able to be that way, uh, is that going to come back or who knows? I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope, uh, you know, a lot of people are predicting it's going to be another roaring 20s, right? This comeback, both both economically, but also in terms of just like, you know, debauchery. So yeah. I don't really give a shit about the economics, but I'm I'm looking forward to some debauchery. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good, a little debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> a little debauchery. We deserve it, God damn Yeah, it. we do. Absolutely. Hey. Richard, thank you for your time, brother. I, it, you know, it's just really nice to hang out with you, but also I'm honored to know you. Well, it's a pleasure. I feel the same way about you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, let's do it uh, in the near future. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. <coughs> Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Anthropology, tangentially speaking, paleo modern, and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal, doesn't ask for much, a little music and a soft touch, why don't you let it out to play, your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest, you wanna shut it up but give it a rest, you're gonna die one day.
take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 